0: you're listening to members of the jury the show that takes you straight into the trenches of justice where the passion players and consequences are real each episode we examine current events happening in the system from the battles in courtrooms to the streets demanding reform we bring those stories here to you the members of the jury because we aren't
1: afraid to take it to the box happy freedom friday members of the jury and thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode we have a fantastic trial breakdown ahead of us today and i think that everybody will be impressed with this attorney's ability to overcome multiple challenges that this case presented to him You know, it's important to highlight that as public defenders, there are always going to be challenges that we have to face in a given case. One of the most challenging parts about being a public defender is that we don't get to pick our clients. We have to take them as we get them, whether they are poor, mean, rude, smart, nice, or difficult. But the best part about being a public defender and the ones who achieve to success are the public defenders who, no matter what, are able to build a rapport with their client and ensure that their client feels as though they've received their day in court. Now, even more challenging is the situations when you have a difficult client who also has a difficult case, let alone multiple cases. And it's the public defender's job to not make the decision for their individual. It's our job to ensure that we put all of the most important and relevant information before our clients so that they can ultimately make what they believe to be the best decision for them. Now, despite the multiple challenges that the case presented for our guest today, he still took his matter to the box. Our guest today will explain how his client had to overcome being a pro per status, having a strike prior, and even having two open cases for the same offense. And it was his first felony trial. Joining me today is Deputy Public Defender Jordan. Jordan, please introduce yourself to the members of the jury.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, Yes, my name is Jordan. I am a Deputy Public Defender. I've been uh, in that position for four years. Uh, It's been my first uh, real law job out of law school and I've really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things I like best about uh, that job is it gives you a great opportunity to be able to work with people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford their own attorney and to help them uh, accomplish their legal goals in their case. So uh, it's been really rewarding it's something that's been great. It gives you some motivation and something important that you're working towards every day when you go into the office. And uh, I'm excited to talk about one of my experiences that I've had so far.
1: Well, we're really thankful for, for your time, and uh, that was a, a really great insight into you know what the job means to you. You know, one of the things that I really love about the this podcast is that it, it gets me an opportunity to really sit down with experienced trial advocates and really pick their brain. And I think that that's something that every great trial attorney does, because you you should always be learning from other people and and crafting your own style. And so one of the things I want to just pick your brain about before we really get into the details of this specific case was just kind of getting into the fact that it was your first felony trial. I I know the ins and outs of, of the trial experience was the same but how did the the magnitude and, and the degree of severity now dealing with felony consequences play a role into the decision to go to trial in the first place
0: yeah you want to make sure all cases you know are important to our our clients that we represent from something that's very small to something that's larger amount of time that you could serve in custody um, so you you give your all when you're dealing with any case because it's important to the client but there are certain differences when it comes to uh, representing clients charged with felonies that uh, you come across. And you wanna advise the clients about the differences and um, what the maximum potential sentence is. When you're a felony, when you're charged with a felony, what your criminal history is, what charges you've been convicted of in the past can have an impact on what your sentence could be on the present case. Just as far as you know, telling clients about Uh, sort of what to expect. And if they're mostly their experience is misdemeanors, and they think that it's going to be credit for time served or not a big deal. A lot of times in felony cases, that's not the case. And there's a range of different sentences from probation to prison and on and go. So just sort of spending more time with the client talking about
1: consequences
0: and about, you know, you want to make sure that they're fully prepared for whatever may come when they do go to trial.
1: I think that's really important. And, and that goes back to what I kind of alluded to in in the earlier part of the introduction, where I talked about how it's our role to really just present all of the relevant and important information for the client to make their decision. And sometimes it, the consequences don't really matter. It, it's about the principle of the charges and the facts of the case, and they really want their day in court. And, you know, I, I get how you, I like how you ultimately again put the emphasis as to the decision to go to trial is is always out of the client's, regardless of the severity of the charge. So I really like how you put that. Another thing that I wanted to explore that I know that you had a chance before we started recording to tell me about was that your client at one point was actually a a pro-per status. Can you explain to the members of the jury exactly what it means for someone to represent themselves pro-per and then ultimately how you came to represent the client despite him having that pro-per status?
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, That was one of the challenges in the case. In in many cases, uh, individuals can elect, instead of having an attorney to represent them, that they would like to uh, act in their own defense and represent themselves. Uh, Typically, what will happen is a a judge will ask that individual what their any legal training has been in the past, what level of education they have, what work experience they have in their past, um, just to kind of get a sense of their ability to be able to grasp, uh, you know, the legal concepts and to present their case. Unfortunately, those who represent themselves, they can't ask the judge or they can't ask the prosecutor or any of the other people that have a role in the case for advice and about how to proceed and how to move forward. So they're going to be counted on to do their own research and have their own uh, knowledge of the procedure and how to go forward in the case. So my client, in the case we're talking about today, he uh, was originally representing himself prior to having me appointed to represent him in the case.
1: And I always think that that's such an interesting situation to be in. My mind always goes to some of the more notorious examples of that. You know, Ted Bundy was able to represent himself somewhat proper, and and even I think the court in his case granted. Co-counsel, which I know is is not heard of in our in our jurisdiction, but it would be interesting, I would imagine, to have a type of client who is just a different type of engagement, I, I think, that they were probably having with the case and the facts. And so uh, I would be interested to see how that situation arose and, and how we if it comes up and it plays a role once we get into the facts of the case. And uh, I think that's a great time to do that. Um, Why don't you just give us an insight into the facts of the case? Imagine you were all uh, before the members of the jury getting sworn in. And what would be the synopsis of the facts that would be presented to all of the jury members?
0: Absolutely. So in this case, um, I was representing a client. He was charged with vehicle theft and uh, possession of a stolen vehicle. And the facts as the prosecution alleged it is that uh, my client went to a car dealership. He asked to test drive a car. He took the keys from one of the employees of the car dealership. He drove the car away and he didn't return. And there was uh, the uh, employees of the car dealership didn't realize that he had driven off with the car and not returned it until a few days later when they were. Checking inventory, they saw that keys were missing, reviewed surveillance footage. One of the employees identified my client as somebody who had asked for a test drive. Um, It later was revealed that my client had previously been to that car dealership and attempted to buy a car and had even put down a down payment. So he had gone through the process um, of uh, applying for a loan through the dealership. He had given them a lot of his biographical information, work history, social security number, address, phone number, but he didn't have the complete down payment. He wasn't able to complete the purchasing process, and he wasn't able to drive off in the car he had originally contracted to buy. So those are the basic facts of the case. He initially tried to uh, buy a car through the dealership, do the contracting process, uh, was unsuccessful in doing that. Did later return to the dealership, was given the keys to a very similar car to the one he had contracted to buy previously, and then uh, left that dealership.
1: That definitely presents some interesting facts and, and tribal issues. I mean, that's not your traditional 10851 where there's a broken window or hot wiring or any contractual dispute. So that, that's super interesting, and we'll love to see how that starts to play out. Uh, take us to the the motions in limine. Did, given the obscure facts of, of the case, were there any evidentiary issues that really needed to be ironed out during the in-limbs?
0: After his preliminary hearing, there was a separate incident for which he was arrested and remanded into custody. And in that incident, he had trespassed after hours at a car dealership, and had um, opened a car that was on the lot, that was unlocked, and he had was found uh, later on asleep inside that car with some of his belongings inside. So he was actually subsequently, while his uh, case was pending and set for trial, he was later charged with a separate Attempted vehicle theft offense.
1: Okay, and then during the motions in limine... Yes, the limine motions. So that
0: the second arrest really became relevant because um, the prosecutor was attempting to introduce the evidence that he had been arrested for attempted vehicle theft a second time as evidence that he had stolen the vehicle on the first occasion. So uh, the argument then was whether or not this evidence would be allowed in. And so the judge has to consider several factors uh, when deciding whether to um, in uh, allow this evidence to be admitted. So the first is whether this evidence is relevant and uh, the relevance threshold is pretty low. And in this case, it is relevant whether or not this person was attempting or to steal a vehicle or was mistaken based on the fact that he later went to a different car dealership where he didn't have permission to go into that vehicle and did that as well. So the relevance threshold uh, seemed to be satisfied. So the next issue is whether or not it should be excluded for any of the reasons that are outlined in the evidence code. So um, the evidence code does caution judges against admitting what are called prior bad acts because they have the tendency to, in a criminal case where 12 lay people you know, just regular people from the community are sitting in judgment and determining the facts of whether or not somebody's guilty of a crime, it has the tendency to cloud their judgment and cause them to prejudge whether or not the person's guilty based on whether or not they've done crimes or bad things or similar things in the past. So generally, those types of acts are not permitted. The times when they are permitted to be admitted where are where they could go to prove for example, whether uh, there's a common scheme or plan, whether or not there's some sort of mo that somebody uses and commits the same crime, and whether or not um, it's a crime that you know shows that that person has you know poor moral character or is dishonest or something like that. So those are some of the reasons that uh, prior bad acts or prior crimes could be admitted, and so in this case. The, the standard is whether or not this crime is sufficiently similar, and the, we had an argument about whether or not there was sufficient similarity, and the judge decided that attempting to steal a vehicle or entering a, a vehicle that didn't belong to my client was sufficiently similar to the offense of driving it off the lot. He the, There was an issue of whether or not this constituted a prior bad act, since it actually happened after the fact of the initial arrest for which the trial was based on. And uh, the judge ruled that he would allow it in even though it didn't actually happen previously in time. And so the, the issue ended up coming down to finally, uh, whether or not um, you could impute the uh, intent to steal based on the fact of a different alleged theft. And that's where uh, again, the idea that we don't want to use, you know, convict people strictly because they're alleged to have committed different offenses. And the judge ruled that the, uh, the second arrest should be excluded for that reason, because particularly in theft offenses, whether or not the person intended to take something that didn't belong to them is always that issue. So any type of theft defense then could be used to say, this person's a thief. And it's it makes it very difficult for them to have a fair trial. So in that motion, we were able to exclude that second arrest, which made the case a lot more straightforward, and it made it easier to present a defense that was credible.
1: Oh, that's that's huge, and and it's it's surprising that they were only trying to admit it under. Eleven oh one uh evidence as opposed to seeking to amend the complaint, which would have been a whole other challenging task to you know have to deal with so that that's a amazing job on on winning those those are definitely challenging preliminary motions to win and, and I would be really interested to do a little bit of a research dive as to the prior bad act ruling I mean is it the prior to trial or, you know, prior to the alleged offense because if it's the latter, then yeah, you can't, you couldn't then admit something you did after the alleged conduct in that trial as a prior bad act unless so that would be, that was a super interesting standard and so um, what I was about to say would have was going to be an unfortunate ruling. Glad that hear it worked out in your favor at the end of it because that definitely makes the case way more digestible. So Motions to eliminate complete, you were able to successfully keep out the similar bad conduct from your case, and that takes us to their opening statements. Uh, I always like to see if uh, I am able to more or less accurately foresee what the prosecution say, so let me know if I'm wrong. I would anticipate that in this case, uh, based on the facts that you allege, they would do an opening statement that would highlight that individual who was charged was contacted in vehicles that he ultimately couldn't prove for him. And when law enforcement spoke to the lawful owners, they said that that individual did not have consent to Have the car that they were then found in. And to them, that satisfied basically the two different elements, uh, potentially three elements, depending on how you break them down, uh, that are necessary for the theft of a stolen vehicle. Is it fair to say that that was accurately presented? Yes, it was. Okay, what I'm uh, not going to accurately predict and what I would be love to hear is how you countered that in your opening statement. And so can you present to our members of the jury how you approached your opening statement and some of the things that you highlighted uh, for your jury members?
0: Yeah, one of the things that I highlighted in my opening statement is that uh, car purchases are pretty unique. Uh, Most, A lot of times they're gonna be based on credit, There's going to be, there's not, a lot of times what the sticker price is of the car is not necessarily what uh, you have to pay. You're going to have to, a lot of people are going to have to finance these purchases. They're going to have to deal with the lender. They're not buying it directly from the owner of the car. They're getting a title through the lender. And, you know, the process is complicated, and some people who aren't familiar with it or aren't as sophisticated may not fully understand what it is they're agreeing to when making the deal. Um, They're kind of relying on the expertise and of the guidance of the people who are doing the selling and trying to facilitate a sale because that's how they profit. So, uh, essentially, that was what I tried to bring to the jurors' attention is that there's a bit of an imbalance where there's somebody who's really eager and is, you know, he sees a price of a car, he sees a car dealer who's a salesman who wants to make a sale, and then the two people can possibly talk past each other on what all needs to be met before the car can actually exchange hands, and that was my belief of what had happened in this case, and so I kind of outlined that for the jury to kind of keep an open mind um, while they listen to the prosecutor's evidence that, hey, this isn't the right car, and uh, he never had permission to use this car, that, you know, the intent is at issue. So listen for whether or not there's, it's possible that this person could have been mistaken about his permission to drive the car.
1: That sounds like a great, great strategy because especially given the unique set of facts that you have with what I heard to be some type of down payment and exchange of some type of key, I think that that's really crucial in in a specific intent type of case where whether or not objectively he had a car that he couldn't necessarily demonstrate was his in his mind did he lawfully did could does he have a lawful reasonable explanation as to how that set of circumstances happened. So let's get into the prosecution's case-in-chief then, to see how you were able to dissect their points and to create the reasonable doubt that you were trying to in the members of the jury. What approach did the prosecution take during their case-in-chief as far as the type of witnesses that they called and evidence that they heavily relied on?
0: So the prosecutor's main witnesses were... The first was the manager of the car dealership. And uh, the reason he was called is because he's in charge of uh, the inventory. He's uh, has to approve any sales um, uh, before the, any cars can be transferred to new owners. Um, and he is also, you know, he supervises the various salesmen. So ultimately everything's accountable to him. There was also the main investigating officer who, when the uh, manager of the dealership called the police to report that the car was missing, who ended up apprehending my client and questioned him about whether or not he had permission to drive the car, where he got the car, how much he had paid, and so on. So those were the two main witnesses There was also an additional uh, salesperson the prosecutor brought to testify as well.
1: During the prosecution's case in chief, did you find yourself spending more time in your cross-examinations with the lay witnesses or the law enforcement?
0: I spent more time on my cross-examination with the lay witnesses. And the reason for that is I wanted to highlight how it is that my client could have been uh, mistaken about whether or not he had permission to drive this car. So one of the a few of the different things that I wanted to highlight were when you go to a car dealership, a lot of times on the car it'll have a sticker price, and in this case these were used cars. Uh, these cars were uh, probably about ten years old, had over hundred thousand miles on them. Each of them were in the like best prime condition, brand new cars. So each of them had a sticker price on them that's close to what um, the blue book value or what the you know, the market rate for those cars is. However, once you go through the process and you borrow money and they run your credit and you make a down payment, the actual price and you borrow and over the life of the loan, which could be five or six years, um, the money you actually pay for that car is going to be substantially more than what the sticker price on the car is. And the reason I wanted to highlight that is because um, one of the elements of the mistake is that the mistake that if you are using the mistake defense and you're saying that your client was mistaken as to whether or not he had permission to drive this car is that has to be a reasonable mistake. So anybody can't just get up there, swear to tell the truth and testify, oh, I was mistaken. I believe that, you know, every car in the world belongs to me. And so now I have the keys and I can take anybody's car I want. You have to be reasonable in your belief. And so when the sticker price on the car is close to $7,000, but the actual price that he's going to have to pay over the life of this loan is $23,000. And it's reasonable that somebody who has a thousand dollars towards a down payment on what's a, uh, priced at a seven thousand dollar car, that he thinks he could have permission to drive that car. He's paying, you know, close to fifteen percent of what that car's value is. But when you go into it and you look into the details of the contract, and it's you have to pay this much, and then you have to finance, and it's this rate of APR and this many, you know. So I highlighted the difference in somebody who's maybe not sophisticated, who isn't completely familiar with the process, who has talked to a salesman, then the manager, then a loan officer, um, and then is waiting to hear back. And he signed all the forms and he's submitted all his paperwork and he's handed over his cash that he intends to make as a partial down payment. Why that person would think, okay, I now have permission to drive a car when the employee hands him the keys without stipulations. So I spent more time with the employees for that reason, because I wasn't going to be able to get that information out of the officer. When I did turn to the officer for cross-examination, you know, I asked him about when he apprehended the client. Did he present paperwork to you that indicated that he had permission to to drive that car? And even though the paperwork that he had in the contract that he had was for a different car, it was for a very similar car. Um, and again, that goes to show the mistake, that he could be mistaken, that it wasn't the white car, it was the black car that he had permission to drive. But they were the same year, they were the same model, they bought, were from the same dealership, so it's understandable why this person could be mistaken. So those were uh, some of the areas of cross-examination that I, I took with the people's witnesses. And again, just highlighting how the car buying process is different than say going into a store and buying a candy bar. If you walk into a store, you take a candy bar, walk out and don't pay, it's maybe not reasonable to think that you had permission to take that. But with a car, the process is so different. These dealerships even advertise, you can buy a car, no money down. With good credit, you can you can sign then drive. There, you see commercials all the time for, this is a sign then drive event. So you know it's not unreasonable for somebody to think they put their signature, they hand their money, they shake hands and that they're going to be driving away with the car.
1: I think that's an amazing job of connecting your cross-examinations to the same points that you highlighted in your opening and making sure that that theme is, continues to resonate and marinate with your members of the jury. I think that's a very effective trial tactic. During the prosecution's case in chief, did they introduce any kind of media uh, evidence, such as pictures or any types of videos, or even you really created? A timeline because it sounds like, you know, otherwise members of the juries would get lost as to, you know, when was this down payment made and this exchange of keys and which car was what? How was the evidence really presented to the jury?
0: The evidence was presented to the jury in that it just came through the witnesses' testimony. The prosecutor just asked, you know, it was more straightforward, it was more factual. When did you notice the car was missing? Uh, when, what steps did you take next? What did you alert law enforcement to be on the lookout for this person? Uh what information did you have to provide them? It was those kinds of those kinds of things. And then when the the timeline, you know, I think possibly for the jurors could have been a bit unclear as to okay, but what car was he buying and when did he buy that car and why didn't he drive away in the car and what happened when you know, so there was is a little bit confusing. There are multiple interactions with multiple employees at this dealership on different days. Um, So I bet I think that part maybe uh, wasn't presented in the most clear fashion because it was more of, you know, focused on the paperwork that he had wasn't the paperwork for the right car. And, um, you know, it's clear that he knew what he was doing when he, you know, took it. And the media that was presented was a video of an interview Uh, With my client, that the investigating officer uh, statement that he had taken, as well as just a a statement that he just body worn camera footage uh, from the scene of the arrest.
1: The fact that they had some type of admission, especially on camera, did they rely a lot on that? And or what was the degree of the statement?
0: Yeah, to some degree, that statement was relied upon. I think it went to show um that it's because my client never said that he didn't have permission he insisted all along that he did have permission so in some ways that evidence was beneficial to me but it was more so that uh the story that my client told the officer was a little bit at times hard to follow and it seemed like kind of like when you ask a a, a younger child something and they kind of spin a bit of a wild tale. So in some ways, it was you know not uh, cogent. He was telling them that he had bought many cars from that dealership before, that his baby mama had a car, he had a car, um, her boyfriend had a car, um, and that he was a, a mogul who had uh, a business under which he bought many cars and he rented them out and leased them. So uh, at first he was he was very clear that I paid for this car this is the paperwork this is the contract but under pressure of the questioning of the officer it seemed like he kind of spiraled a little bit and started to panic maybe thinking that he was you know going to go to jail if he didn't have an explanation as to where he got this car and why he had permission to have it so that that evidence was also presented and from the statement that my client gave but there was never an admission that He knew or didn't or didn't realize that he didn't have permission to take this car.
1: It sounds like there was some aspects of like grandier thoughts happening and the unfortunate combination of though that type of thinking with the what's been deemed, you know, legal police interrogation tactics are are not a great combination. You know, I wish that the read technique would be banned because it just it allows police officers to really take advantage of situations and their place of authority to put people into uncomfortable situations and end up saying things out of context or just even things within the context that just they more or less were coerced to say and i'm not necessarily saying that this in particular is an example of that there are plenty other examples of that but just that the combination of those techniques and what sounds like somewhat of a mental state um for not a great combination after the prosecution got done with their their case in chief or, or was there a point during their case in chief where you you realize there may have a different a different hurdle that now what you were facing that you didn't necessarily catch before the trial? There's always,
0: uh, with trial, you never know uh, fully um, what it is you're going to get from the witnesses. In this case, I thought the witnesses came off really credible, patient. They weren't, uh, I didn't get resistance on many of my questions. They were, you know, not people who had experience maybe testifying in front of jurors, but it was, you um, I thought that I was going to get maybe a little bit more pushback and have the witnesses be a little more hostile. And in this case, they were pretty compliant. They, the One of the witnesses was openly stated that his just desire was just to get the car back. And that was all that they were kind of hoping to accomplish. So they weren't really out for, for blood from my client or anything like that. So that was something that you just kind of have to adjust to because you may be ready to go to war with the witnesses, and you may be ready, but then, you know, if they don't present in that way where it's appropriate, then you end up looking like the unreasonable person to the jurors. So, just sort of kind of understanding what the witnesses are giving you and then kind of trying to, you know, keep that energy.
1: That takes me back to trial advocacy 101, and and one of the first lessons that I learned is that During your cross-examination, you get more with honey than you do vinegar, and that if you come across as the unreasonable, mean, aggressive attorney to a sympathetic witness, then the contents of the examination can oftentimes get lost, and the demeanor of the behavior can really be the thing that settles with the members of the jury as to how they feel as to the more credible source of the, you know, basically the presenter of information. So that was a really good insight on your part to realize that that could play a role in, in this case and that you didn't, uh, you know, lose any type of cool because you were super gun ho on, on making a point. And so sounds like nothing out of the ordinary from the prosecution's case in chief. During your cross-examination, did you feel that you were able to really solidify a great point that you wanted to make in closing or that you felt was like a really big win that you were able to get across?
0: Yeah, I think just uh, the main thing was the number of steps that it takes to actually make a a purchase of a car. It's not just you go in and you point it out and you select which one you want, but it's days-long process of you have to submit all your biographical information. The bank has to conduct a thorough review of your credit, verify your employment, verify your address. They do a check on your background and your criminal history. When uh, And then you don't exactly know what it is you're going to be paying for the car until that's all said and done and which lender is going to approve you. So, the fact that there were multiple appointments required and uh, kind of constant contact, um, while well, my client was just kind of waiting in the wind, kind of thinking that he was going to be given a car, and then when he finally did, uh, just thinking that that was the culmination of the process, not realizing that they were totally unconnected. So those were the, the um, things that I kind of wanted to get out. And to get, you can't get like really your client's mind state, but you can kind of highlight for the jury, the number of steps and the different levels and complications you have to go through. And also what I really harped on was how much of my client's information that uh, these folks had. They had a phone number to reach him and they had multiple times. They had his address, they had his social security number, they had his employment contact, Um, All this other, you know, and I just kind of wanted to highlight that there were ways that this could have maybe been resolved short of this process. And it's not something you can explicitly like highlight for the jury, but you can kind of hint at that, you know, this isn't a, this isn't somebody who was trying to, again, it goes to the mistake. This isn't somebody who's trying to rip these people off. He gave them the roadmap of where to find him. This is just sort of a misunderstanding.
1: I think that's a beautiful tactic. To focus on that type of behavior and to highlight that buying a car is complex and has different ways about it. You know, you could put zero money down. You could put a lot down. There's all types of different contracts that one can enter with a dealership that would allow them to be given a set of keys and then drive. And so I think that that was a very important strategy to highlight and and glad that you were able to feel that at that point in time, that message was being delivered to the members of the jury, because that is a really important part of the cross-examination. So after the prosecution rested, were you able to bring the directed verdict motion? And in the rare situation, did you have any success with that motion?
0: Yeah, in this case, uh, so the two charges that my client faced were one for, um, as you mentioned, it's vehicle code ten eight five one, and that's driving a vehicle without authorization. Um, so I didn't think the directed verdict in for as to count one was going to be successful just because it was. Um, you know the there was testimony that he didn't have permission to drive that vehicle he was actually caught behind the wheel of it so i felt that you know there was at least probable cause for those elements but as to count two which is possession of a vehicle that the person who's driving it knows or should know to be stolen i did make that motion as to that count because um I didn't think that none of the statements that my client made that the prosecutor elicited from the, uh, uh, police officer or his actions from the dealership indicated that he didn't, he knew that that vehicle was stolen or that he had, you know, attempted to steal it. So I did make that motion as to count two, but that motion was not granted.
1: Boo. Well, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, but that's why, there's always the the jury, um, you know, generally after motions in limine for us uh, as the defense attorneys, it's not very often that we put on a case in chief and we usually just start preparing our closing. Uh, what about this case for you? Were you? Did you actually present a case in chief or did you go directly to closing?
0: In this case, we did present a case in chief. I had uh, there was a sort of an in-between time where we didn't really have a, a great break or Opportunity to kind of debrief from the uh, prosecution's uh, closing of their case in chief. And I just quickly turned to my client and just wanted to confirm that he wasn't, he didn't feel the need to testify after how the evidence had been presented. But uh, that's always the, as your listeners know, it's always the client's right to decide when or if they're going to testify. And in this case, he elected to do so. So uh, got him up on the stand and just kind of wanted to run through what I had already kind of highlighted, um, but just make it more clear for the jurors. What was going through your mind? What was your, you know, subjectively, what did you think was uh, happening when you got the keys? What did you believe that you had agreed to when you paid the money? And it it came out in his testimony that he thought that he had permission because he had already given a payment. He later found out that they sold the car he had originally contracted for. so. He assumed that that money could be transferred to the down payment for the other car that uh, he was given the opportunity to test drive. The cars were substantially the similar cars. It was a different paint color and maybe one model year newer, but it was the same uh, make, uh, the and the same model of the um, of cars, and that was his belief that he had paid and that he had permission. So that was the uh, the extent of our, our case in chief. I, I also I ended up calling one other witness who the prosecution didn't call uh, from the car dealership, who had actually been the initial person who had showed my client a car, uh, but that person didn't really have any recollection of dealing with my client. One of the things when you take the case on late because the client was representing himself is you don't have the opportunity to be able to interview every potential witness. So I didn't want there to be maybe somebody who could say something that was helpful to our case who didn't, who went uncalled. And so I I called that individual. He didn't have really too much to add to the case for either side. And, and then that was
1: that. Interesting. And and that's what a, I guess I can't say that I'm surprised that a pro per client wanted to take the stand. You know, one of the most challenging parts of a client taking the stand, definitely for the prosecution, is that they don't know what the client is going to say at all. And oftentimes there's usually some type of testimony that comes out that the attorney, didn't know was going to come out as well. Uh, with your client on the stand, did anything happen that it was just unexpected, and, and that you felt that you had to address and, and recover from?
0: You're so right that that is a you know that's a part of every trial, and there's surprises a lot. Sometimes they'll come from your client, and you can prepare as much as you want, but when until you've been in that environment and you are in front of 12 strangers and your freedom is on the line, then you—you you know nobody knows exactly how they would react or how they could expect anybody else to react. And so that kind of happened in our case during the cross-examination. So the prosecutor got a chance to ask my client some questions and asked about his past convictions, um, which were, he had some felony convictions that were allowed to be admitted, just the fact of the convictions themselves, um, also asked him about, and he was, you know, he, he didn't readily admit them. He kind of said, I mean, if that's what you say, then, you know, he, he kind of took a defensive posture. Um, she also asked him about contradictory statements he had made stating that, you know, he didn't, it's not that he believed that the contract for the other car applied to this car and the down payment did as well. But in fact, he believed that he owned all the cars and he had all the cars from that dealership consistent with his statement to the uh, police officer when he was being interrogated. And he kind of fell for that trap and uh, agreed that, yes, he did have, he did own all the cars and he had paid hundreds of thousands of dollars for over 10 cars, and he had done business with that dealership multiple times, you know, none of which we were able to verify that that was the case. So it kind of, in the end, came Mm -hmm. off as he might have had, you know, something to hide and also for the jurors, it was just a little bit confusing. So what is the real story? What is is the defense that he had bought that car in full along with multiple other cars? Or is the defense that he was just mistaken about whether he had permission to drive this one singular car? And so that was a little bit, you know, because that's kind of how I think is I'm very linear. I try to keep everything on message and focused and, you know, first this, then this. And it's easy to see how this could have gotten interrupted here. And this is where everything went wrong. And It's not my guy's fault. So that was kind of how I intended to present the case. But, you know, through the cross-examination, it went a different direction. And then just to drive the point home, after I, you know, attempted to rehabilitate my client, the prosecutor reopened their case to present, you know, more statements from my client that he had given to the investigating officer just to show how, you know, to what degree his story was a bit all over the place.
1: And and I could see how that could potentially be a a useful tactic for them to do. But as I'm sitting there listening to you, it it still doesn't address or negate the elements that sounds like their own witnesses conceded that there was 100 percent this element of a contract that existed, some type of money exchange of a down payment and a, a consensual giving of the key, you know, just because then thereafter the client may have this grandiose thinking that he has now somehow purchased the whole lot. I don't really think that that goes or has any sway on the actual elements because they're not negating that that primary part of it, which is, I think, really crucial, like you were talking about, given the specific intent of this crime. So, uh, totally interesting to see how they presented that aspect in closing. Other than that, did you feel that your your case in chief went the way you intended it to go?
0: Yeah, that's. Those are all really good points that you just raised, and you know sometimes you can get distracted and you can think all is lost when it doesn't go according to plan. If you're person who likes to plan and prepare for everything but in trial there's always that element of surprise and being able to be flexible and and respond to uh, how the case is playing out and to just you know keep your composure and make the best out of what you have and to bring the jury back that's your job as the um you know your job is to guide the jury and your job is to tell the jury what the facts show and what elements can and can't be proven So I appreciate you, you know, stating that, that though it kind of could have confused some issues, it wasn't, you know, dispositive. It didn't mean that the, you know, the case was lost in any way.
1: Well, I'll say that's a, that's a beautiful response because we talked about it in several episodes that in every trial, you're almost certainly going to have a what the fuck moment. And it's just The more of those that you have and get through, the better at handling the situation you'll become. And it sounds as though that's exactly what happened here. But given your experience, you were able to handle it really beautifully.
0: Yeah, no, I, that's, that's exactly right. That's, you do the best that you can. And so, uh, given that at first I was, you know, I was a bit stunned, I was a bit taken aback. I was, I, I was worried in that this case, and again, my client had a, quite a bit riding on this case, and you know, he was heavily invested from the start, as you mentioned, having been pro-per. When he's representing himself, you know, he's basically saying that he's willing to risk whatever because the principle of, you know, his innocence is that important to him. And so, I, I respected that, that he entrusted me in that role, and I wanted to, you know, kind of help deliver for him and and vindicate that position. But I did feel like that we had a bit, a bit of a setback having after the case in chief. And so at that stage, it's I did what is familiar to me and I just consulted with colleagues. And that's one of the great things about being in a public defender office is that you have people who've been doing this work for decades and have seen everything two and three times. And so you can ask them about any situation and they'll help get you on track and what I decided to do was to shift course and maybe uh, strike a different tone with my closing argument than the one I had presented in my my opening.
1: Interesting, interesting strategy. And a trial is always going to develop because, as you indicated earlier, you can never really know how the evidence is, is going to come out. And so Pivoting and audibling is uh, 1000, a component of all trials. So let's get into the closing statements. Uh, again, I'm going to take a stab at this. Correct me uh, if I'm wrong or add any additional set of facts. But more or less, I, I think that the prosecution would highlight the same set of facts that they did in their opening. And from our conversations, the only additional factors that I think that they would harp on was the fact that this guy isn't an angel and that had he has had some other criminal conviction in his past. The criminal convictions in the past, plus just being in possession of a car that he couldn't prove was his and that the original owner said weren't, is enough to convict him of these offenses. Was there anything else that the prosecution highlighted during their closing arguments, or did that pretty much cover it up?
0: That pretty much covered it up.
1: Okay, great. Um, I might shift ge- careers here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I think it, it, it's a good sign because I, I'll preach uh, to every attorney out there that the, the good trial attorneys are able to litigate the case from the other opposing side just as good, if not better, as the case that they're representing, and that just helps you deal with any of the complications that may arise. Most, of, a lot of which we've we've highlighted in this episode. So then, Jordan, put all of the pieces of the puzzle together for our members of the jury. What did you highlight during your closing argument? And how were you able to convince and persuade members of the jury that, you know, your client is not guilty of the charges alleged?
0: Putting the puzzle pieces together... Uh, In every case, you're going to have facts that are good for you. You're going to have facts that aren't as good for you. And so people uh, like wise, experienced trial attorneys will always tell you that you can't hide from the bad facts because that just, you know, that means that there's an opening in your case and there's something about your case that you don't want to address because you know it's weak for you. And so, whenever you can turn the bad facts and you can make them positive for you, that's when you start to have a compelling case because you say, even with the best thing they have to say, my client is still not guilty. And so, that was the tack. So, initially in the case, I was very matter of fact and I was there was a contract, there was a signing, there was a payment, there was a misunderstanding of whether he had permission. And it was just he's not guilty because there was a mistake. And that's just the law says that. A mistake is a defense in this type of case. For the closing argument, I used the bad facts, which in my case, I believe were my client's statements that weren't entirely consistent uh, with the you know, mistake defense, because not only did he believe that he had a contract for that car, but he believed he owned many other cars too. And that came out. So uh, instead, I used kind of an emotional appeal and to just kind of remind the jurors that my client was, in fact, mistaken. And the reason we know he's mistaken is just because he experiences reality in a way that's different from maybe you or I. And I just kind of put them in the position that he was in, where he was trying to get on his feet. He had hope. He had somebody who was going to sell him a car. He had just gotten his license. And that car meant new opportunities. It meant a chance to have gainful employment, to be able to move his life forward and to kind of leave behind Some of the stuff that the prosecutor had tried to highlight was part of his past. And, you know, he was persistent, even though his first attempt to make a payment and to sign the contract and to bargain in good faith and to make a deal with these folks didn't go over. He returned and then um, he believed that he had finally gotten his opening and they, uh, you know, he had gotten approval and he had permission when he was handed the keys and he kept the contract and he had that. And he immediately turned that over. And then following that, he also didn't d- do anything to disguise the car. He was at the address that he provided. He was at reachable at the same phone number that he had provided. They had given his social security information, employment history, that kind of thing. So he wasn't hiding anywhere. He hadn't run to another jurisdiction. He had, he did everything the right way. You know, He didn't repaint the car. Or he didn't hide the license plate or anything like that. And then finally, I just highlighted that it was the same model and car that they had you know, entered a contract that he was eventually, if he had the down payment, would have been approved for. He didn't go into the dealership and take the Porsche or he didn't take the Maserati. You know, It was the same car that he was already. So to go through all this, like that would be kind of, you'd either have to be the best or the worst criminal ever to think like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go in with my $900. I'm going to give it to them on the belief that they're going to give me the keys to a car and I'm going to be able to drive off and just get away with this. So just kind of like, you know, use your, uh, imploring the jurors to kind of use their common sense. And like, is that a person who's mistaken about whether he has permission to use the car or is that somebody who's a criminal mastermind and thinks that they're never going to stop me from getting away with this Hyundai Sonata that's 130,000 miles on it. So Um, Just kind of like appealing to the jurors, like in that sense, instead of the formulaic reasonable doubt is a high standard. And you, you want to do some of that too. But a lot of times the jurors are, it's going to be more persuasive, the, you know, the logic, the reasoning, the emotion, like where your client is positioned and where he's coming from and what he's perceiving. And just kind of You know, And that was the benefit, using the benefit of having him testify so they could get to see that up close and say that this isn't a person who was being malicious at all or intentional about what they're accusing him of doing.
1: I really like the emphasis that if he was trying to intentionally steal the vehicle, that he has to be one of the worst criminals ever because he left them with all of his personal identifying information. And I think that that's a very true and valid point. I will say that the counter to that are uh, people are convicted of crimes because they oftentimes aren't smart. So <laughs> there's a little bit of a double edged sword to that, but I, I totally get what you're saying, especially in the contents of this case. Um, that just didn't seem plausible. So that sounds like an amazing closing. Uh, you know, a successful trial is one that allows you to always highlight your theme and theory throughout all phases of the trial and from what was presented here today that definitely sounds like that happens uh for the members of the jury in this case can you go ahead and give us a verdict as to uh the charges in this case what what did the jury return us to the both both of the charges
0: yeah the jury did come back both charges with the verdict of not guilty yeah yeah um he had two cases so in this case he was vindicated and acquitted, he still had the other case that was pending that the jury didn't get to hear about. So he didn't get to walk out on that day, but he was static. and He, he felt like the process worked for him, even the convoluted way that it took to get to the end result um, with the multiple steps and the pro-per and then having me represent him. And so that's the most rewarding thing is feeling like you know that your your client felt that he was well served
1: absolutely verdict verdict aside i think that 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 to me and and to most public defenders is the deciding factor as as, as to whether or not the case was quote unquote won or lost was you know how how does a client feel that they Uh, their case were represented and and secondary is is the outcome. So, you know, amazing wins all around. Congratulations. Thank you so much for breaking down that trial for us and providing us with that insight and knowledge. As always, we ask our guests the final question on each episode. And after taking this matter to the box, explain to the members of the jury, what is the significance of taking matters to the box?
0: A great question. Great question. And, you know, it's the Raise on debt for the podcast, and what their significance of taking it to the box is that making the prosecution prove their case, making sure um, you know your client's pro- the your client's rights in the process is respected and is fair to them at every turn, uh, giving your client an advocate who is there by his side and is fighting for him at every stage, good facts, bad facts in between. And taking it to the box just means that eventually with enough skill and practice and you'll you'll get better results. And that's why we're in it at the end of the day, is to get good results for our clients, to serve them, provide high quality representation. And on the occasions where that requires a trial, then we have to be prepared to be able to deliver that.
1: That is some definitely Freedom Friday spirit and a great way to wrap up this episode of Members of the Jury. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate having you. Well, Members of the Jury, that's our show, and I rest my case. Be sure to come back next episode as we take another matter. The box. If you're a fan of the show, go ahead and subscribe. You can also find us on social media at members of the jury. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback, be sure to email us at lhurstie at members of the jury The information in this podcast is provided as general reference work as a public service. The audience is advised to check for changes to current laws and to consult with a qualified attorney on any legal issue. The use of this material does not create an attorney-client privilege in any fashion with the podcast, the host, or the guest. This information is for educational purposes only, and no one affiliated with the podcast may be held liable for any decision made based on this information.